Yes, it's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. I'd like to introduce to the Backseat Driver Radio Show, Peter Baker. It's safe to say Peter is famous at this moment in time for two things. Team Retro Speed, which is uh, an online and social media-based magazine for historic motorsport fans, and the fact he hill climbs and is soon to be rallying um, a Daimler Conquest. Peter, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Good afternoon. I mean, how did all this come about? Are are you from a motorsport background, or is it something, is it a bug that bit? Uh, no, uh, I think I was born probably within a couple of miles of a, a, a mental asylum, <laughs> and, and I, I, did, I couldn't escape, and I've, I've been there ever since. So, is, is motorsport a family thing, or is it, as I said, is it something you just got into as time went by? Yeah, but I, I I went to a secondary school in South London, and um, it was boring. And we were only interested in playing cricket and football. <laughs> and during class time, we'd stare out of the window or draw aeroplanes and motor cars. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we used to listen to Raymond Baxter on the radio reporting back on the Monte Carlo rally. And. Um, I didn't know I had this hankering for a sunbeam rapier. Yeah. And Airfix did a very nice model, and I, I, I put one of those together. So, I, the, yeah, Monte Carlo Rally uh, became a, a goal in my life. Uh, and when historic rallying came along and into my life, and, oh, I don't know, what are we talking about, 1988-ish, um, I built a sunbeam rapier and entered Philip Young's Monte Carlo winter events. Yeah. So that that's really, that was my springboard into historic rally. Yeah. I mean, not being funny, you're a little bit older than I am, but you have the benefit... Well, I don't know how old you are. Me, I'm, I'm the glowing age of 61, nearly 62. Yeah, you see, I'm only 23. All right. <laughs> okay, I'm not 23. But I'm like, yes, I'm older than you, yes. But I think I think when you think back, you were able to grow up in what I would call, in many ways, the golden era of rallying. Because back then, um, and I've said this on many occasions, rally cars were a very recognisable thing. You could look, you could look, you could watch the British Pathé footage of the rallies. And then walk past the showroom and see a car in the showroom that was more or less the exact same as had entered the actual rally. So, rally cars and rallying, shall we say, uh, the, the public, shall we say, be, were able to more closely connect to it than they are today. Yeah, I passed my driving test in 1965. Yeah. Um, so, those of us that those those who weren't part of the swinging sixties and being invited to drug parties <laughs> um, went rallying yeah. and we had the mini and the minis you could buy a, a mini that, a, that was a couple of years old and you you didn't have to do anything to it you could put a map light in it and um, that's about all really uh, and then you could join a local motor club in my case Sutton and Jim and um, off you went you had to find somebody 
daft enough to sit in the left-hand seat and navigate. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was all good fun, and and I, it, it grew from there. So I, I started with a 1961 Austin minivan, yeah, H71 WPG, and I think it was called Citrus Green. Yeah, and and that, yeah, it was quite reliable considering it was a very early mini. I think the other thing people don't realise is the minivan has quite a, shall we say, sporting uh, history on it. I mean, people have used the minivans for many, many things. It wasn't just the little mini saloons. The vans were up there with them. Yeah, the, 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 the van, if I remember correctly, was slightly longer than the saloon. And um, so that gave you slightly more, slightly uh, improved road holding. And... You, and you could do exactly the same things in the tuning way that you could with a standard Mini. Uh, so, yeah, it was all there. And minivans as a commercial vehicle. Although I think legally it was pretty... You, you weren't really allowed to use a minivan as a competition car because you had to have windows inside. Yeah. But nobody seemed to bother. <laughs> so... I think the other thing was, as by virtue of the fact the minivan was the chosen vehicle of lots of companies like Telecom, the Post Office, etc., they would come on the market very at a very affordable price once the company that owned them had finished with them. Yes, yeah, yeah. You, you could buy a minivan for I don't know seventy-five pounds. Yeah, and they were, good, they were good fun and an everyday car, uh, and. You, you could even put a bed in the back if you if you wished. <laughs> so so they, they were multi-purpose vehicles, you know, rally car, rally car one, <laughs> rally car one night and bed the next. And, uh, and so I, you I, didn't have to go home. No, and I spoke to people who, who, like you said, they went to work in them, they rallied them, they do a little bit of racing in them, they'd uh, auto test them. In fact, the the minivan was in many ways slightly more universal than the mini, uh, and it's now become uh, uh, far more desirable than mini in many ways because they're a lot rarer than the normal saloon car. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but I was I was I was pleased to move on. And I, I, I what did I buy? An early uh, a Mini Cooper, yeah, nine nine seven Mini Cooper. So that was the the original first of the Cooper's Cooper range. Uh, and once again, they were cheap. And I was selling. I was working for a Ford main dealer then. Yeah, and I I bought a Mini which came in as a part exchange, and I paid one hundred and seventy five pounds for it. <laughs> We, we rallied that to death. We did the odd motoring news event with it, and um, yeah, slowly the floor wore out. So we we dumped it and bought another one. Yeah, that that was the, that. There were the days when you could actually go out and just find them and buy them. Now you can still find them. It's the uh, problem of buying them, of course, given the fact that you can you'll start at around sixty thousand pounds and go upwards by quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's also affected historic rallying um, yeah you, you go back to the 1995 1996 and and mini cooper s owners were quite happy to rally them because their value was i mean it, it, they were affordable now you you have to think twice you know would i really go out and and risk damaging my car yeah when it's it's going up a thousand pounds every six months yeah 
I think that's why now a lot of comp a lot of people, shall we say, building the replicas of them uh, and keeping the original safely tucked away, so it can only come out in summertime for various static events. But yeah, absolutely, yeah. It is yeah. nice. It's nice to see them, and it's certainly nice to hear them with the straight cut gearboxes and everything else. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like Bugatti, isn't it? Bugatti to buy a thirty-five Bugatti is almost impossible. Yeah. So uh, a company in Argentina, I think, produced a, a, a tool room replica. Yeah. Which was twenty-five percent of the price. So Bugatti owners of, of thirty-fives had two. They had the, the proper one, which they kept for Sundays, and then they bought the. The, the tall room copy which they used as an everyday car yeah even had the same oil leaks I seem to recall <laughs> but uh, I suppose the problem is if you've got a car that uh, weighs in somewhere between the three quarters of a million and a million plus mark you will be tempted to uh, look after it yeah it, I was yeah, worse more than the house isn't it, nowadays yeah so but the fact that yeah, sorry. No, yeah, you're all right. So, from all this, of course, uh, I conclude Team Retro Speed, it was something that you came up with once you'd retired. Yeah, about 20 years ago, I, I was, I worked for a, 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 a one person who was reasonably successful, but unfortunately he was a workaholic and put himself into an early grave. Yeah. Which, it, so that I, I had a, reasonably early retirement and I decided I wouldn't work for anybody else and I thought well a passport to what I enjoy doing would be to create a magazine specialising in historic motorsport yeah I didn't have the skills or the money or the desire to create a print magazine yeah which we're talking about sort of just I don't know what 2005 or and and the the revolution of the internet was just it had taken off and and the idea of, of running a, an online magazine certainly appealed yeah uh, how you would ever make money from it i had no idea but that was secondary so yeah i, I took the plunge and created retro speed as a as an online news magazine and it's still going now so we've been going 20 years yeah so, is it just you, or is there anybody else involved? Um, my wife, uh, Lynn, we, uh, it's, it's a long story, but when we kicked the thing off, um, I tried to do it on the cheap, and had a couple of youngsters came in, and they designed the website for us, and said, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, you know, you need lots of flashing lights and sound, uh, which was fine for the first six months, and then they cleared off to work in Holland. And I couldn't run it. I had no idea how to get into my own website. Yeah. There were so many passwords. <laughs> it was so complicated. So uh, I bit the bullet, cancelled the whole thing out, employed somebody who was still with me uh, and on a monthly retainer. And, um, and we redesigned the whole thing. And uh, we, we stuck to the principle, keep it simple. Don't make mistakes. Don't make stupid mistakes. Yeah. Make mistakes. Always read everything before you before you commit to to, to print, as it were, and um, just get a, get the facts right. Yeah. So that was that was our guiding principle, um, and then uh, because I'm so old, <laughs> although perhaps I'm short of technical 
experience. Uh, I do have a reasonable amount of knowledge that I can fill in gaps. And once I once once the magazine got underway, I found that I was surrounded by others like me who had the experience and a certain amount of free time. Yeah. And they were quite happy to join in and be part of what we were doing. And as long as I wasn't doing it to make money, they were quite happy to provide content in the same manner. Yeah. So that worked very well. And it, it's amazing that the knowledge that's out there, and it, it needs to be harnessed. And not only in the UK, but across the world. You know, yeah. you people from Australia say, oh yeah, we, we've got these cars that came over, uh, they were built in here, and you know, this is a picture, and this is the history. Oh my God, I mean, there's a whole world out there of, of classic cars that we didn't know about. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's one of those things, your your team retro speed magazine is something that i read i follow it on uh, facebook etc and it seems to go from strength to strength but it's like you said there's people out there who have been probably looking for an outlet for things like this okay there's the printed classic car magazines but they cover a, a broad spectrum whereas team retro speed tends to concentrate on the historic side and Every time there's a race, once that race is over, it becomes part of motor racing history, which is something you've been able to tap into very nicely. Yes, yeah. I, yeah, when, when we when RTSB started, we did try to cover everything. Yeah. And, and it just didn't work. We were too thinly spread. And anyway, I, I, uh, the reason for doing it was, was historic motorsport. So yeah. we concentrated on historic motorsport and we went we as a group went covered events from goodwood Mont classic down to the smaller club meetings vscc hscc and we had previews and uh, as we grew into social media with facebook then our inner core enthusiast group grew and we had uh, drivers, mechanics, um, marshals, everybody, and, and they would contribute and put in their their view of what was happening. Yeah, and, that, and that's what we do now. So, Retro Speed is it started as a news, rolling news magazine that we updated pretty well every day. Well, now we've we've changed it slightly, and it, it's updated uh, maybe every seven to ten days. Yeah, which is still a, which is still a lot. And of course, it's very flexible, so we can change as we go, which you can't do with print. Uh, but but we've allowed the social media side to take over yeah. as an intermediate as an intermediate. So even now, as we speak, uh, there's discussion going on about some rallies that are coming up and, and the next race meeting, Goodwood Revival. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of the things I found. Just on a personal note, I used to somebody used to run a website for me called motoring northwest but i used to promote the articles etc on social media and i discovered that social media took over to a degree i abandoned the website because i thought well i'm sending people to read something that they're already reading on social media yeah it it, it depends what you want from it um the, the our magazine the core product is it, it retains its history 
The other thing about historic motorsport is, I mean, regular listeners will know, I, I've interviewed a lot of old racers and old rally drivers, and the one thing I've found compared to the younger drivers, and the problem is the younger drivers haven't been in the sport long enough, but the old drivers have some fantastic stories to tell. So the, the occasional story at times you don't wish telling on the air, but they'll still be told. Um, but they come from an era or came from an era when they weren't as hidebound with the uh, press officers and political correctness and everything else they tell stories they had some fantastic stories to tell and they still do and a lot of them are looking for outlets to be able to tell their stories and to be able to reminisce yes yes yeah well i i, I don't know how old was i 30 and um, the avon tour of britain uh, which I think was four days and attracted people like James Hunt uh, and it was uh, the, 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 the event visited circuits around the country and it, it was incredibly successful and attracted all the top drivers and we had the late Tony Dron driving our car yeah. which was uh, a Mexico uh, and um, I, I met people um, like Barry Williams and my God, you know, these are people, uh, Antonio Lanfranchi, and these are people who lived the way they wanted to live. Yeah. And yeah, they went racing, but uh, they did it their way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and for a young man like me, it was probably best to stay away. <laughs> yeah, I think they could get you into bad ways if you weren't careful, but couldn't they? Well, they did, yes. I mean, sorry, they could have done. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now, as I said in the introduction, the other thing you're known for is hill climbing a Daimler Conquest, which is rather a nice, medium-sized, uh, some, if you don't mind me saying so, st somewhat staid British luxury, <laughs> luxury saloon. How did the Daimler Conquest come about, and what made you want, what made you decide to use a Daimler Conquest? Oh. Well, I think we're going back to the days of insanity again. <laughs> I'd, I'd never owned a car with a pre-selected gearbox. Yeah. And I couldn't afford a pre-war car. And the Conquest, this particular car, came up with a dealer down in Bristol. And his, his wonderful description, you know, this was the best Conquest ever in the world. Uh, and it was a pre-selector and it was reasonably priced so uh, yeah I bought it um, and that's it and then after I bought it I said well what the heck am I going to do with it because uh, as you say it was a car that was it was a spin-off from from a company that that really specialised in stately homes on yeah. wheels yeah uh, 
And the conquest was their interpretation of a, of a family four-door saloon. And the, the board of directors in 1953, I think, were convinced that everybody on Merseyside to the east end of London could afford to go and buy one. Yeah. Uh, which wasn't the case, so they didn't make that many. Um, um, I did When I bought it, I, I bought it really because of the pre-selected gearbox, and I, I hadn't owned one, and I, I thought, well, I'll give it a go, and if I don't like it, I'll, I'll sell it. Uh, but after I bought it, and I did some investigation. Uh, there, there was a trickle of competition history that, that came out of the whole thing. Well, an awful well, world just butting in. There was a, apart from the fact that uh, they sprung into notoriety when Hammond used one on Top Gear for a rally, but I know the day of the conquest took part in the 1955 Monte Carlo rally. Indeed. Uh, uh, Daimler built seven competition cars at the factory which they then lent to prominent race and rally drivers um, and they entered five cars on the Monte Carlo rally uh, one of which was driven by two girls Nancy Mitchell and Lola Grouse no uh, and they finished 17th overall and I out of 384 cars that started which was in, in a day of the conquest uh, the same as mine and um so I, I, this came to light, and I thought, oh, that's what we'll do. I'll do the Rally Monte Carlo Classique. Uh, originally, I was going to do the Historique, uh, which was it's quite a competitive, long, arduous, hard-working event. And I know Robert Grounds, who is Lola's son. Yeah. So I contacted Robert and said, Robert, we're going to do Rally Monte Carlo Historique and you're, no, and you're going to relive what your mother did in 1955. And he said, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm too old. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I've got the old tickers giving me a problem. And so plan B was that we did the classic version. Yeah. Uh, which was milder. Uh, you, you did the, virtually the same route, but you didn't have the same, same time controls. Well, yeah. you did have the same time controls, but you didn't have to be there spot on the minute. Yeah. And we went as a three-man crew, uh, Guy Loveridge, who I think you know. Yes, yes, I know Guy very well, yes. Yeah, well, he came as our third crew member. And uh, so we completed the, the Classic in 2020, a couple of weeks before lockdown. Yeah. So that was ticked off the list, and then um, I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with it now. You know, this black four-door saloon sitting out in the garage, um, and then my wife, who accidentally, incidentally, works for the Bugatti Owners Club. Yes, I've, just, I've met your good lady on a few occasions. Well, she, after one too many glasses of wine in the clubhouse, suggested that I did the Bugatti Owners Club Hill Climb Handicap Championship for those that had not done it before. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, anyway, I signed up to it, and that's what I'm doing this year. So, Doris... <laughs> as, she, as, the, as the dame that is affectionately Nicole. Indeed. Uh, don't ask me. I have no idea why. We just thought Doris was a good name. <laughs> Although somebody said, well, there, there used to be a, a comedian on the BBC called Doris Waters. Yeah. And she owned, uh, now this is uh, the Doris, the, uh, Doris, the Daimler Car Club, uh, the, as can be imagined, 
a, a large percentage of the members are getting on a bit. Yeah. And, and this guy, this guy came along to one of the hill climbs and said, I bet you call your car Doris after Doris Waters. I thought, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> and then, it, then he said, well, Doris Waters used to own a Daimler Conquest. And she called it Doris. So we assume that's why you've called yours, does it? No, no, no. Anyway, so that was that. And um, so, yeah, so this season uh, I've been flinging <laughs> Doris up the, the different hill climbs. I must say the images I've seen look quite spectacular because when you look at the car, uh, they weren't overly designed to be driven like that, were they? No, you, they were designed for you for the owner probably to sit in the back and be driven yeah <laughs> um, so and, and that I, I mean the remarks I get the, the sarcasm <laughs> um, you know do you take a picnic with you yeah when you go up the hill and and do you have a sign on the back that says running in please pass yeah and anyway I, I can put up with all that because it's a handicap so in theory I stand the same chance of winning as any as, as, as the guy in the Subaru whatever it is WRC yeah who's much quicker but handicap wise there's not much difference so at the moment I think I'm third in the championship so yeah, that's alright I can handle that and the one uh, thing the one thing you've done you've you've brought the dame the conquest back to notoriety i mean people now <laughs> people now know what one is <laughs> well i'm not sure because there's nothing on the car that, that there's nothing on the car not even on the hubcap well there's no hubcaps but there's nothing on the car that tells you it's a daimler apart from the apart of course from the uh, the grill if you recognize a daimler grill you'll recognize the fact it is a daimler well, it's a fluted grill, certainly, but it doesn't it doesn't say Daimler on it. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, I, even people uh, who perhaps would have known say, you know, what what is it? <laughs> well, they don't quite say it. They say, what is it? <laughs> and, and so I tell them it's a Daimler, and they still don't know what it is because they've never heard of Daimler anyway. Yeah. Yeah, regrettably, it's a bit of an age-giving, age-giving age-away thing when people know what certain cars are, isn't it, these days? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind. I, there, there's, there's a level of, of um, uh, humour yeah. about the whole thing, but underneath, I, I do actually take it quite seriously. Um, the car is very well prepared. I, I'm lucky that I live very close by a, a, a race preparation company, yeah. uh, retro engineering, and um, they look after it for me and make sure that everything works as it should do. Because I notice of late you've had a little bit of an engine problem. Well, I blew the head gasket, which was my fault. I, I was at Lowton Park and uh, I just it was red mist uh, the last run of the day and I thought, right, here we go. And here we didn't go. <laughs> I got halfway up the hill and it dropped onto three cylinders and, yeah, the head gasket had gone. So I had one week to locate a, a genuine head gasket and fit it and get the car up and running again. Uh, so, and that was at Prescott. And uh, I didn't do very well at Prescott. I, I 
I, I didn't do very well. I, I missed the gear change, which is not easy on a pre-selected gearbox. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we should be okay. I'm at Lone... No, I'm not. Where am I? I'm at Chelsea Bush. Uh, in about 10 days' time. Right. Uh, which I haven't been to before uh, as a competition. And then it all... The whole thing finishes back at Prescott, which is the final round of the season. And I'm hoping... I'm hoping that I can go to Prescott with an outside chance of winning the championship. It's possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. You never know. You literally never know. Yeah, and then, and then, I, who was it? Norman Wisdom. He said that you know they're not laughing now. <laughs> so when I told him I was going to drive a Daimler, they all laughed. Well, they're not laughing, laughing now. Now the other thing <laughs> is, I think next year you're off to do the big Monte Carlo historic, aren't you? The classic. Yes. Well, it's not the classic now. They they've dropped that, and the the classic has been has been incorporated in the main event, which is Rally Monte Carlo Historique, which is the historic version of the modern Monte Carlo Rally. Yeah. Uh, it's run for older cars, and you, although you use the same stages, and it runs just one week later. The, the times it's a regularity event and yeah. the times are, are much slower so and uh, they do have a regularity section for older cars older older cars so you, you, you can you there is a possibility that Doris can maintain those speeds yeah uh, whereas before it would have been impossible it, it was just too quick but now I think we do it should be okay. And where do you intend uh, setting off from? Well, for the first time since 1984, uh, the rally has a start point in London. Oh! And it, it's starting from Brooklands. Right. So there, there's probably like, uh, 50 cars will start, but there's, there's multiple start points around Europe. Yeah. And so uh, London is, is one of them. Uh, it's a traditional start well in the UK it's a traditional start point it used to be Scotland John O'Groats and stuff but they've made it London and um, it starts January the 24th next year very nice so we're we're expecting a big turnout and I think with the beauty of the day in there is whatever happens you'll be nice and comfortable won't you mm. sorry I'm just just having a slurp of coffee <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the Daimler is it's it, the Daimler is a, what I would call a slugger. Uh, it's got a lazy six-cylinder engine, two yeah. and a half liter, or two point four liter, and it's got stacks of torque, one hundred and thirty pounds of torque. Yeah. And although well, it's not quick, uh, it it can pull itself along nicely, and it can carry a reasonable load. Yeah. So for something like an endurance event like Rally Monte Carlo historique um, it's not a bad choice you've got a long overnight concentration run which is uh, takes you from Brooklyn to Monaco non-stop you just, you, maybe you get four hours somewhere yeah but basically you're driving from London to Monaco without stopping yeah and then you get one night in bed and then you've got 
the next four days of competition in the mountains. And then you go back to Monte Carlo, and after a, an afternoon rest where all the cars are lined up on the harbour side, it just like the old days, uh, you will have to climb back in again, and then you go and do the traditional final night lift, which includes the Col de Turini. Yeah. And that's, that is, I mean, that's a fantastic experience. The, the French treat the event as their own. Uh, there's, it, uh, yeah, be careful what you say, but they don't have the same, same uh, regard for for restrictions as we do in the UK. Oh, I can I can vouch for that, having competed in the Tour Auto on a few occasions. Well, absolutely. Well, in that case, you, you know. And yeah, they, they got the good old John Dorms for competition do tend to turn blind eyes. It's possible that they do. And certainly, although it's a regularity event and the, 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 the rule of law is such that the roads stay open, um, the, the, the gendarmerie do close the roads 15 minutes before and 15 minutes after the stage. Yeah. So you, you're not going to meet anything coming the other way. And you, all the locals, I mean, they, they love it. Yeah. There's thousands of people that go on to the Col de Chirini on the final night. And there's so many ex-works cars do it. And ex-works French cars, you know, the little Alpine, Renault, uh, and, and they're all cheering and they even sometimes throw snow in the road just to <laughs> liven things up <laughs> but yeah it, and you drive through the villages the whole village comes out and cheers you on and they lay on coffee and snacks for you and yeah really 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 good the atmosphere is fantastic so Peter Baker it's been fantastic chatting to you we could no doubt have gone on for quite a while still, but thank you very much indeed for joining me on the Backseat Driver radio show. Enjoyed every minute. I shall now go and carry on mowing the lawn before it rains. <laughs> Thanks so much indeed, Peter. Take care. All right. Okay, bye. 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 beaten on price never beaten on service whether it's cars bikes or commercials Hoddy tires are the best in the business and when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle specific requirements nobody comes close to david lakin and the Hoddy tires team so give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk